Singe, Singe, Zinger. You're listening to Zinger Network at zingernetwork.com. The last time I was in New Orleans was this summer, in June. It was Father's Day weekend in the United States, and the friends I have in the Big Easy were spending that Sunday with their families. Sons with dads, dads with daughters, dads with dads. I lost my dad the year before, so I was on my own, and just took myself out for a nice meal instead. After dinner, I took a stroll through the French Quarter, down a cultured little side street. The night was gentle and warm, like the soft part of the neck of someone you love. There was a full moon. I imagined the city 100, 200 years ago. Shops closed but lights on in the display windows. Tourists and locals strolling too, admiring the antiques, the souvenirs, each other, the gaudy and the refined. A hot breeze rustling through magnolia leaves. Pretty much a night just like this. I don't like to go in the same direction for very long, so after a few blocks I turned left and left again. I wound up on Bourbon Street, the street that never closes, where you can get a Long Island iced tea or a hurricane at any time of day or night, where Mardi Gras beads roll under your feet, and during peak party season, balconies and street, bars and gutter are stuffed with people drunk on booze, drugs, lust, hot weather, easy sex, the promise of forgetting who you are. Every night on Bourbon Street during this season feels like the end times, everyone partying like there's no tomorrow. But this was a Sunday in June, Father's Day, and there were no crowds, no beads being tossed. Only loud music blaring in empty bars and a few committed partiers stumbling through the trash, shuffled across the street by that hot southern breeze. If Bourbon Street at Mardi Gras is like the last night on earth, Bourbon Street on Father's Day is Cormac McCarthy's The Road. but with a dance track. Welcome to Artipus, art you can hear. Artipus brings you to the very first Artipus Salon and the installation of artist Jana Marie Caridi. If I said I had a beautiful painting, would you hold it against me? At Artipus headquarters in Berlin. I've been to New Orleans four times in my life. I don't know why. I mean, I know the purpose of each individual visit, but I don't know why I have this strange, long-distance relationship with the city. Long-distance in both time and geography. It's like a lover you've had for 20 years that you only see occasionally, but who never really leaves you. It's weird. 
Not long after I left New Orleans, on my way back to Berlin, I saw on Facebook that a friend in Berlin, the artist Jana Marie Caridi, had posted, moving back to the U.S., need to sell some paintings. Anyone have a gallery where I can have a show? I had met Jana the year before. We chatted at a party. She was in Berlin for a residency and had just arrived from New Orleans. We saw a couple of exhibitions together, hung out a few times. I wasn't sure what I felt about her work. I liked it, but I couldn't say why. It's weird. Anyway, when I saw her Facebook post, I messaged her and said, let's do an exhibit at my place. It's a good place to have a show. She said yes. I'm lucky enough to create Artipis, among other things, in a spacious loft in Berlin. I've used it in the past for live house concerts, networking dinners, and giant art parties, but I hadn't had an event there for almost a year. Installing Jana's work in the space seemed like a good way to bring it back to life again. Preparation When I first got to know Jana's work, it reminded me of the animations for the Beatles movie Yellow Submarine. And I couldn't tell if I liked her work because for me it was simply nostalgic, or if I liked it for what it actually is. She works mostly in painting, favoring rounded corners, cartoonish forms, intense, almost unnatural colors, exaggerated scenes of faces, places, things. The closer I looked at her work, though, the more it reminded me of New Orleans, or at least the New Orleans I saw on Bourbon Street that night. Her paintings are bright and quirky, almost kitsch, almost camp, but there's an underlying truth in them for them to really be either. Jana's paintings are populated with hearts stabbed by knives, or hearts so full they're almost bursting. Self-portraits always with black lips, eyes decorated like skulls used for Dia de los Muertos rituals, domestic scenes that look banal until you look closer, a mouse hole, a cigarette pack, the cord of a hairdryer hanging out of an overflowing bathtub. The colors and shapes of her paintings are so loud and playful you can almost hear them, squeaking and squirting, funny, bordering on obscene, like strange chew toys, like the images themselves. The first time I went to New Orleans was when I was 23. It was 1991, and David Duke, former Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, was running for governor. It seemed so ridiculous and unbelievable at the time. Who would vote for someone like that? That first time, I visited the city in August. I had itchy feet, wanted to move out of New York. I think I was reading the Interview with a Vampire series at the time, and New Orleans seemed interesting, in the way that things do when you're young and romantic and brave enough to explore the world on a whim, or salacious fiction. Anyway, August seems crazy, but I thought I'd go during the worst time of year to see if I could handle the heat. I discovered I couldn't, but I also discovered the strange magic that lives there. I went with a friend, and our adventure started out in a run-down honky-tonk bar somewhere in the French Quarter that sold cheap burgers and had a laundromat attached, which I thought was the most intelligent way to do laundry I had ever seen. We met a taxi driver at the bar who had been paid off for the night by private clients. They'd found a club they wanted to stay at and asked him to pick them up again at 5 a.m. He was stuck in between, not off-duty, but not really on either, with just a bunch of empty, post-midnight hours to fill in between. 
He offered to drive us all around town on our own private tour, and we went from the Garden District to the Financial District to the Marigny, until we wound up in a Barbie pink bar full of giant trans women who only had eyes for our cab driver friend. He hightailed it out of there, leaving us to fend for ourselves in the middle of the night in a sketchy part of town. And then it started to rain. There's often rain slanting at one angle or another in Jana's paintings. Perfect blue teardrops or squiggly sperm that fly out of windows. Showers of tears trickling down faces or hitting windows or both. And rainbows. Rainbows that never bend in an arc, but bend like above-ground pipelines that deliver water and electricity in cities to rich and poor alike. These weird highs and lows, happies and sads, brightly colored tragedies, somehow also capture the sexuality, danger, and loneliness behind the glitter and glitz of New Orleans. Invocation Jenna often paints on canvas with really thick frames so they can stand on their own rather than needing to be hung on a wall. Because of the open space at Artipus HQ, and because I had just been in New Orleans, I wanted to be able to walk among the paintings, to position them around the loft like a kind of night garden, although someone else said it was like a cemetery. Diving deeper into my thoughts on this night garden idea, the garden of good and evil in relation to Jana's work, New Orleans and voodoo, I came across Papa Legba, the first spirit you have to invoke in a voodoo ceremony. He occupies a kind of no man's land, a bardo, where he is the gatekeeper between the land of the living and the land of the dead, between what was and what will be. One of the few paintings we did hang up was Jana's dress-up that we positioned on a support pillar in the middle of the loft. A two-part painting, a kind of self-portrait, a face framed by a vanity mirror, the mirror frame and light bulbs pink, the hair purple, little girl barrettes and hair clips fixed in the hair, one eye sad, the other eye also sad, but dressed up with blue eyeshadow, the lips black, the face is either looking out or looking in at itself. Either way, it's there to greet you when you walk in. The second time I visited New Orleans, I was in town to ring in the year 2009 with two friends I had met in L.A., Morgan and Stewart. Morgan is a native of New Orleans and had just moved back to be closer to his parents. I myself was in Chicago at that time, there to help take care of my mom in what would turn out to be the final year of her life. I stayed in Morgan's sister's room, marked by a faded pink door at the end of a very long, very dark corridor, as if The Shining had taken place in Barbie's dream house. The bedroom was preserved as it had been at the peak of girlhood adolescence. Pink, frilly, white wicker furniture and ornate mirrors, ribbons and flounce. A basket of discarded Barbies lay near the vanity, like abandoned possibilities of adulthood. My favorites were the ones with their hair hacked off, the first adult lesson of every Barbie-owning child. Some mistakes are permanent. Morgan, his then-partner Stuart, and I were all recovering from our respective broken dreams, so we weren't ringing bells for joy so much that New Year's Eve as tolling bells for what had been, while we waited for whatever was coming next. Our days were spent in Audubon Park, visiting plantations, and decoding the handwritten signs on Ninth Ward houses that had survived Hurricane Katrina, even if their residents hadn't. Old ghosts, new ghosts, and whatever else wandered the streets in between. One of Jana's biggest canvases that we positioned on the floor, called Shelter, 
a painting 183 centimeters by 122 centimeters, is of a house. All pinks and blues, a window of rain, fried eggs floating in the sky like clouds, the lawn blue. The house is open, sliced in two like a doll's house, so you can see all the rooms all at once. Stairs lead up to a room filled with a heart. Fuzzy vines float in and out of an empty galley. Nothing hidden, nowhere to hide, nobody home. Although the front door is shut anyway. Possession. I also learned that in voodoo, the spirits are invited into a circle, and they're given food, drink, cigarettes. They're feted and made happy, and then you ask them for protection or favors or healing. Jana's paintings kind of remind me of that too. We were creating the party for the spirits to enter to ask for safe passage between one state to the next. Jana from Berlin to back home, me from back home to Berlin, which is home now too. But this also makes me think of the vulnerability of humans at this time, at the crossroads, asking the devil or the spirits or whoever for help. The whole thing can go wrong at any moment. But also, you have to swallow your pride and recognize forces stronger than you to even enter that circle and ask for help. It's this moment of vulnerability that interests me, the moment between the cocoon and the butterfly. And our voodoo guests might look a lot like Jana's painting, Mood Cubes. Three cubes, each displaying different emotions flying through the air, a rainbow ribbon connecting them all. They are both friendly and frightening, edges so sharp they're painful, faces so silly they make you laugh like you've known them all your life, but you still have to be careful around them. The third time I visited New Orleans was in 2017, when I learned my martial arts teacher had returned to his place of origin after a lifetime in L.A., I was already living in Berlin by then, and was traveling back and forth to the U.S. quite a bit that year to see my dad, whose life seemed to be winding down. My teacher had set up a new dojo in Covington, on the other side of Lake Pontchartrain, and invited me to visit on one of my trips back to the States. When I arrived at the airport, a World War II exhibit at the Historical Museum was being advertised on giant posters all the way to baggage claim. From New Orleans to Berlin, the posters said. I had dinner with Morgan, trained in my teacher's new school, but was mostly on my own. On my last day in New Orleans, I took a walk to the French Quarter, wondering whatever happened to that old laundromat bar, the name of which I had long forgotten. I happened to pass a honky-tonk-looking place, peeked in, and sure enough, there was the laundromat in the back. It was the same bar. This time, I made sure to note the name of the place, Checkpoint Charlie's. At dinner the night before, Morgan told me he had just taken a TV crew to a voodoo ceremony, and afterwards was directed by the priestess to leave a dead rooster at the local fire station at midnight. Like any reasonable person, he did it. Who wants to find out the hard way that this stuff is real after all? I thought about this as I waited for my cab to the airport at 4.30 a.m., a rooster crowing somewhere in the Marigny, the house across the street softly pulsing light from whatever all-night ritual was going on inside. Mm-hmm. 
On the opposite side of the loft from the giant shelter, a row of plants created a pathway to honey-flavored pipe dreams. A large painting of a Rube Goldberg-like machine, a complicated contraption that shoots a flower out of a pipe on one end and a smiley face out of a pipe on the other. That pipe housed in a vulva, a fried egg wilting on an elbow joint. Floating eyes, caseless windows, pulse and pump across the canvas. Everything leads to a full, beating heart, although all the ways of getting there are complicated. Nevertheless, on the way to or from the heart, the flower is black, the smiley face has tears, and even the drops of rain are jagged. In the end, Janet decided to stay in Berlin, and the pressure to sell her works at the salon was no longer so... pressing. Her friend Nate made delicious Louisiana-themed finger food for the evening, and our friend Martin supplied some Bombay gin for cocktails. It was a lovely party. The only pieces to sell were a set of four small wooden blocks, each painted with a bright, exaggerated severed finger, rainbows fanning out from each fingertip. I'm the one who bought them. For me, they reminded me of the bejeweled fingers of Rosalind Russell in Auntie Mame, a film I first saw as a little girl on a harrowing summer holiday, and a character I didn't know could exist, and who I wanted to be. Except for Mame's fingers, dripping with gaudy rings, but to me looking old and arthritic and weird. I felt it was time to own them. For Jana, they're called sacred fingers, and I asked her what that meant. She said, My fingers are actually my favorite part of my body. Actually, they're the only part of my body that I particularly like. I'm also really grateful for what they do for me. Without them, I wouldn't be able to manifest and communicate all the things that go on inside of me. I see my fingers as an extension of my world. So for me, it starts with the fingers. Their severed condition is to show that even if I feel disconnected from my body, I still have the power to shoot rainbows. So maybe here I am sacrificing my fingers and just thanking them for their ability to make shit. Our salon happened a month ago, in August, and this episode is a month overdue. Turns out, I'm the last one to leave the party. Very much against the southern etiquette of Morgan and my teacher Chad, who each advised me once, long ago in L.A., to always leave a party at its peak, so you remembered only when people are at their happiest. Except when the party's on Bourbon Street. I found myself back in New Orleans this summer, in June. My teacher had sent me an email earlier in the year saying, if you're in the States again, it would be nice to see you. Uh Uh-oh, I thought, what's up with the old guy? 
He never asks to see people. So I figured I'd better go. My teacher was calling. The city was calling me back again. Another afternoon of training at the dojo in Covington, and my teacher drove me back across the lake into town. He took me on a tour of the Crescent City, his city this time, through the financial district, the garden district, and up towards the Marigny. Hot sun dripping through the Spanish moss, porch wine drinkers rocking in the shade. My martial arts teacher is a Vietnam veteran, trained as a medic, has worked private security all over the world, advised on Hollywood films, and trained police departments. He's a no-nonsense kind of guy. I told him, I feel like New Orleans is the only place where it would be totally normal to see a ghost in broad daylight. Oh, absolutely, he replied, no hesitation. I told him, I don't know why I keep coming back to this place. Maybe it's to top up my juju. Sounds about right, he said, and dropped me off at the Carrollton Avenue train stop so I could take the St. Charles streetcar back to my hotel. The next day was Father's Day. Morgan was spending it with his dad. My teacher was spending it with his daughters. My dad passed away a year ago from liver cancer. I had no phone calls to make, no obligations, no living person to celebrate. So I spent the day wandering aimlessly around New Orleans, soaking up whatever there was to soak up. I went to the butterfly garden at the Audubon Museum, visited the Natchez anchored at the riverbank. A few odd coincidences happened. An old high school friend messaged me about the artwork at Jackson Square, just as I was looking at the artwork at Jackson Square. Another friend called and told me to check out the drummers at Congo Square, just as I was walking into Louis Armstrong Park to check out the drummers at Congo Square. Algorithms, magic, voodoo, who can tell these days? That evening I had an inexplicable craving for pâté. I googled restaurants New Orleans pâté, and the only place that had it on their menu was a place called Luke in the financial district. So I showered off the day, put on a nice dress, and celebrated Father's Day at Luke's, a German restaurant, eating foie gras. That is some white people voodoo for you. After dinner, I took a walk through the French Quarter and tried to picture the city 100, 200 years ago, same as it is today, and wound up on Bourbon Street, walking the long blocks between the party and the dawn, until I had been going in the same direction for too long, and it was time for a new one. Work from Jana Marie Caridi's installation, If I Told You I Had a Beautiful Painting, Would You Hold It Against Me?, can be viewed at janamariecaridi.com. That's J-A-N-A-M-A-R-I-E-C-A-R-I-D-D-I dot com. Music used in this episode are samples from New Orleans Second Line Jazz Funerals.
The Artipus Salon is a quarterly event. Follow us on Facebook for news of the next one. If you'd like to listen to previous seasons of Artipus and support the show, visit artipus.com. That's A-R-T-I-P-O-E-U-S dot com. And click on the donate button. Your help helps us create more art you can hear. I'm Susie Colick, and you've been listening to Artipus, art you can hear. Artipus is produced in Berlin for Zynga Network, and you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify under Zynga Network. Just search for S-I-N-G-E Network. Artipus is also broadcast in France exclusively on World Radio Paris. WRP on your DAB dial. I'm Susie Colick, and you've been listening to Artipus, art you can hear. You've been listening to Artipus, Produced and edited in Berlin by Susie Kollek, with original theme music by Hotlegs, for the Zynga Network, S-I-N-G-E-Network.com. <laughs>